listening to the Between Two Paddles podcast, brought to you by The Lake & Co., where we believe we're only as good as the company we keep. Lake & Co. is a company comprised of three very different entities, Lake Time Magazine, Lake Bride Magazine, and The Lake & Co. Shop. Lake & Co. is inspired by and celebrates the stories of people doing exceptional things in the North, local, authentic, and inspired. We are an independent, bootstrapped, community-driven, women-owned company built on hard work, enthusiasm, and a whole lot of grit. We are Northerners. Subscribe to Between Two Paddles via iTunes now to continue hearing the stories of these folks. You might just be amazed. We always are. A few months ago, I learned that the largest inland oil spill in history was in Grand Rapids, Minnesota. I can't even remember where I heard this information, and I didn't get too many details, just that it happened. My family's from northern Minnesota, and some of them are born and raised in Grand Rapids. When I asked them about it, they had no idea, in their own hometown. I asked more people. Nobody had a clue, or at most they had maybe heard of it, but didn't know that it was the biggest ever. I thought it was kind of a big deal, seeing as Grand Rapids is right at the headwaters of the Mississippi, and upstream from some of the cleanest groundwaters and biggest wild rice beds in the country. I researched a little more and found out that, and this is info from an article written by Winona LaDuke, executive director of Honor the Earth for the Grand Rapids Herald Review website. On March 3rd in 1991, the Line 3 pipeline ruptured near Grand Rapids, Minnesota, spilling over 1.7 million gallons of oil, much of which flowed into the Prairie River after a negligently delayed response by the company. That's Enbridge. The Prairie is a tributary of the Mississippi, so were it not for the 18 inches of ice on top of the river, the spill could have poisoned the drinking water of millions downstream and would likely be remembered very differently. So thank goodness for all that ice. Otherwise, it would have been a situation like in Kalamazoo in 2010, also a pipeline owned by Enbridge. 35 miles of the river was closed for cleanup for two years. That spill was smaller than this one. Can you imagine what would have happened up north if our waterways or lakes were closed for two years? Obviously, our drinking water and health would be affected, but also our way of life. According to the DNR, fishing alone supports 35,000 jobs, and it contributes $2.4 billion to the state's economy in direct retail sales, ranking Minnesota fourth in the nation. And... We're also only second to Alaska as far as resident fishing participation goes. So why bring all this up now? Well, that same company now wants to replace this crumbling 56-year-old Line 3 pipeline, the same one that ruptured in 91. 
and it's up to the Minnesota Public Utilities Commission to answer the question, does Minnesota need Line 3? And if it does, are the benefits worth the risk of routing it through the lakes and rivers of northern Minnesota? They're expected to decide in June whether to grant Enbridge the certificate of need and route permits required to begin construction. One of the great benefits of the pipeline, of course, is that it provides jobs for Minnesotans, jobs that pay a decent living wage, which in a lot of places in rural Minnesota is really hard to come by. According to Eric Swanson, an attorney for Enbridge, the most recent pipeline proposal is expected to create around 4,500 construction jobs at its peak. But the Minnesota Department of Commerce submitted testimony last year stating that Minnesota doesn't even need this oil, so why have it travel through our state at all? Kate O'Connell, manager of the department's Energy Regulation and Planning Unit, said, In light of the serious risks of the existing Line 3 and the limited benefit that the existing Line 3 provides to Minnesota refineries, Minnesota would be better off if Enbridge proposed to cease operations of the existing Line 3 without any new pipeline being built. But Enbridge spokesperson Jennifer Smith says, whether you like it or not, we need to continue to have a reliable, secure, stable source of oil, and an economical source too. Which is true, right? The average American lifestyle, as they are right now, require oil. If you drive a car, you use oil. There's many facets of our life that require oil. I'll go into more detail on that later. But this is where I started needing help understanding the situation. Because there's so much more to this story, and it's so much more complex than I could ever explain. But the heart of what I was really interested in was the perspective of this story that is both inclusive and connective. Meaning, where's the middle ground? If we understand that there's two ends of the spectrum when it comes to oil, one on one end, where we have Enbridge, maybe we have people who, who work for the pipeline who are entirely in support of oil, and on the other, we have conservationists, protesters, many indigenous communities who are wholly against oil extraction. What I've observed is that, not unlike our politics, we have two groups who oppose each other, but who often exist in their own echo chambers, preaching to the choir to each other. And when they do interact with someone from the opposite end of the spectrum, they're so riled up about what they've been talking to each other about, that when this occurs... The conversation is unwavering and unrealistic, and it ultimately leads to disconnection, when what is really needed is educated, realistic, and compromising conversation. So, recognizing that this is a topic that I could not tackle on my own, I sought out professor, author, and cultural trainer Anton Troyer to help shed light on some questions that I had. I met him at Bemidji State University, where we sat down in his office and got right down to business. So there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Um, and really, there are many, many perspectives and dimensions to the story. Um, big picture, I, I think, first of all, as long as we are buying gas at the pump and putting it into our car and using the internal combustion engine to get around, someone is going to figure out how to get it out of the ground and get it to market. And between the regulations 
and the protests that can slow that down, that can make that more expensive, but it's not going to stop the end result. Someone is going to get it to market. We then have to ask, what's the most responsible way to do that? And frankly, there's every kind of unreasonable from every side of this thing going on. Mm-hmm. Like, would you rather have it in a, a truck, a train, or a pipeline? Because they're going to move it somehow. For me, I'm not 100% against pipelines. But the other dimension to this is that... If the oil is coming out of the ground somewhere, like the Bakken oil fields in North Dakota, and it has to go somewhere to be refined, pipeline companies don't pick point A and point B and then sculpt the most environmentally sensitive route for their pipeline and then look at all of the people they're going to be intersecting with and also take some consideration to things like tribal sovereignty, history, or where human population densities are. And then pick the most responsible route to get it from point A to point B. They use for their decision-making process the most financially expedient route to get it from point A to point B. Right. Business. It's all business. It's about the almighty dollar. These are private corporations that need to enhance shareholder value. And it's big money. It's huge money. Just for the Line 3 thing alone, Enbridge spent $5 million just on lobbying our politicians just in Minnesota. So they are expecting a huge payday. If they were actually truly responsible environmentally and truly responsible with regard to tribal sovereignty, this wouldn't be a fight at all. But they're not. All pipelines leak. There is no pipeline that's ever been built that has never leaked. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. The government doesn't have rules that say every 25 miles you need to have you know, a valve on your line so that if there was a rupture, it would only be a 25-mile section of pipe that's compromised. Hmm. So they can run hundreds of miles without that if they want. And so they make the regulatory decisions, internal ones, based upon what is financially expedient for them. They're not pro-spills, right? Because that costs them money too and bad PR, right? right? But so they do have like safety controls and mechanisms, but they're willing to take risks that other people wouldn't. That's something I didn't know before talking with Professor Troyer, and I'm not sure many other people know either. Pipeline companies regulate themselves. There's no state or federal regulatory system set up so that they operate in a way that's in the best interest of the health and safety of the people who live around them. They get to make their own rules, essentially, which means we don't have any say on how safely they do things. And yet, according to Lisa Dillinger, a spokesperson for Energy Transfer Partners, including the fact that they will eventually leak, 
She says pipelines are the safest and most environmentally friendly way to transport the oil and gas products we use every day. But still, people don't want them in their neighborhoods, in their backyard. You know, what we saw in North Dakota, even though that is a different pipeline company, so Dakota Access is a different company from Enbridge, and Dakota Access was building you know, the line up at Standing Rock, and Enbridge wants to do the Line 3 expansion here. So, you know, all companies aren't exactly the same, but they're in the same industry, and Enbridge does own shares in Dakota Access and things like that. Uh, And, you know, what we saw there, like, when the white folk in Bismarck complained about the way they were going to build that line, they accommodated them and moved it. Right. And when the Indians complained, they were ignored. And also with the regulatory process, instead of looking at an entire pipeline and getting an approval for the entire thing, what they did is they broke it down into 1,000 different construction projects and got each one approved independently. Hmm. So by the time things blew up in Standing Rock... They already had their approvals to build all the way up to the res and all their approvals to build everything from the other side of the res all the way out. Mm -hmm. And so what they did, they didn't wait for the approvals at Standing Rock. They just built all the way up to it and they built all the way away from it. And then there's no way to reasonably do a bigger reroute. It would be like almost cost prohibitively ridiculous to reroute that And that's done as a political strategy to mute, blunt, weaken the power of Native voices or anybody else who might resist a particular pipeline project. Mm -hmm. And frankly, not only is it disrespectful to tribes, but it's really disrespectful to the environment. Because if you did pick point A and point B and draw a more responsible route... Then, and that was really the first priority, and the regulatory apparatus insisted upon it, then there'd be a lot less to fight over. Yeah. And frankly, it's very short-sighted for the companies like Enbridge, too, because we saw with Sandpiper, which is another pipeline that was heavily resisted, the delays were so expensive for them, they had to abandon the project entirely. Mm. And so the voices of protesters do have an economic consequence for these companies and have the potential to produce a positive environmental benefit. If you're involved in the pipeline or oil conversation at all, you're most likely aware of the Dakota Access Pipeline and what happened out at Standing Rock to some degree. It's because of the degree of media attention this got that according to Alexandra Kless, University of Minnesota Energy and Environmental Law professor, regulators are increasingly taking more skeptical stances toward pipelines and other fossil fuel projects. 
The internet and social media means that projects like Keystone and Dakota Access aren't just local issues anymore. These are big national issues. Which also means that protesters come from all over the nation. Some are wondering if things here will escalate like they did at Standing Rock. I do feel like Enbridge is trying a little bit harder to mitigate that. I, I do like not... situation? Yes. I, yeah. d- I doubt that Enbridge would actually um, hire a private security firm and use attack dogs, for example. Right. Um, I think... I kind of doubt we'll get exactly what you had in Pine Ridge for a number of, or in uh, Standing Rock for a number of reasons. And one of those would be there are a number of protest camps. There's some at White Earth. There's some at Fond du Lac, too, over there. There's, there's all kinds of them. Um, and so people are a little bit more spread out. The um, points of resistance and contact will be multifold. So there may be some days where there's uh, you know, more people showing up in order to try to block a physical construction effort on a particular day. That's, that's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think um, you know, the law enforcement communities had a lot more time to think and plan around this. Um, and while they have the capability and they have further developed even more capability to provide a military response, I think they are more likely to try to defuse things first, you know, um, and they've got tactics and strategies that are designed to do that. Um, and also the indigenous communities here are a little more divided um, on some things. Uh, so, you know, I doubt that the political leadership from each of the different tribes is going to have the same position. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that Fond du Lac, Leech Lake, and White Earth, you know, and Mille Lacs will all have the same position on the pipeline, and they all have an interest in what's going on there. Mm. I think Leech Lake, you know, politically, feels like they've gotten some wins in their negotiations with the pipeline and may provide less political resistance, government-to-government kind. Um, You know, and I feel like, you know, White Earth also had a little bit of accommodation because initially some of it transected the watershed for the... Um, lower rice lake and in a worst case scenario could have had oil down there and that's the best rice bed on the lake but they moved some things around a little bit so that that was no longer an issue Mm. Um, so that was a total non-starter for everybody it was a little bit of an accommodation Um, not sufficient in many people's eyes Uh, but I suspect that come June they will approve this pipeline and they will do it on the altered route uh, and there will be resistance. It won't be quite like Standing Rock. And some of the law enforcement and even education official responses exacerbated things there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I just got a feeling that while there will be notable and newsworthy resistance, that um, it won't be as much or as successful. Mm-hmm. So since this conversation with Anton happened, things have already changed. When he refers to the winds that Leech Lake got with the pipeline, he's referring to an altered route that was proposed by Enbridge as part of their replacement plan. This altered route shoots south before the Leech Lake Reservation and basically goes around it. Win for Leech Lake. But the upset was, it's not only closer to other reservations, but it's basically an entirely new pipeline, with no plans to dig up the old one, not a replacement at all. This made a lot of people upset. 
But just recently, Administrative Law Judge Ann O'Reilly recommended that Minnesota regulators approve Line 3, but only if it replaces the existing line in its current location, the one that goes right through the middle of the Leech Lake Reservation. This isn't a binding decision, but it will likely affect how the Minnesota Public Utilities Commission, or PUC, decides in June. Take a look at the facts about oil consumption. Even the people who are opposed to oil extraction use oil. It's hard not to in our society. According to oilprice.com, the average American consumes 2.5 gallons of oil a day, nearly 22 barrels a year. That's your share of U.S. total consumption. The true number is harder to discern because we all live different lives. But Minus industrial and non-residential uses, daily consumption drops to about 1.5 gallons per person per day. This, of course, changes depending on if you fly often, if you use plastics like grocery bags and bottled water, if you use electricity, if you wear clothes made from polyester or synthetics, like the stuff that makes your leggings stretchy, and especially on what car you drive and how often you drive it. It's hard to imagine our daily lives without these things. So knowing these numbers, we still have people who say just absolutely no to oil. Let's transition to cleaner energy like wind or solar. And yet many of these people still consume oil in one way or another. Another notable fact, though, that we can't ignore is that according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration's International Energy Outlook for 2017, the global supply of crude oil and other similar fuels is expected to be adequate to meet the world's demand for liquid fuels through 2050. That's only 32 more years. Then it's gone. I do think, like, you have to have a long-term strategy and a short-term one, right? So, like, to me, the most effective long-term strategy will be one that encourages, informs, and enables everyone to use less oil, Mm -hmm. right? So I think it makes sense to build energy options that are greener. There's no neutral way to live on this planet. Like, we're all going to eat something, and it's going to have an impact. Mm -hmm. And... You know, so looking at things that do the least amount of damage in a reasonable way. And honestly, this is my advice to Enbridge, too. Like, oil's got a shelf life of, like, 100 years. Maybe. You know, as a product. Mm -hmm. So, you should be building not just some green projects to deflect public criticism, but building a company that is going to deliver an array of products that will be successful in any age and in any marketplace, including the ones that best information says are going to be there. 
you know? And, and that would mean that a company like Enbridge, while in the short term pursuing its oil extraction and transportation business, is also exponentially increasing its capacity and knowledge of how to deliver in wind, solar, and many other things. Mm -hmm. And they do have an emerging portfolio of things there, but it seems like a lot of it's to deflect public criticism rather than really take the long view on their business. lot more to this conversation and a lot to think about so we've split it into two episodes be sure to tune into part two for more from professor troyer on how the conversation about oil and resource extraction inspires conversation about cultural change and how everyday people can get inspired and involved in issues like this thanks for listening to this episode of between two paddles a big thanks to dr anton troyer for not only making time to speak with me, but also being willing to speak on this subject. If you want to get in touch with him, you can contact him through his website, antontroyer.com. That's Anton, T-R-E-U-E-R. You can subscribe to Between Two Paddles via iTunes. This episode was brought to you by The Lake & Co. with music by Trample by Turtles and Lee Rosevere. Don't forget to email me at camatthelakeandco.com if you know someone with a story to tell. Thanks again, and keep telling your stories. Till next time.